All right, welcome to Free Association. It looks like we've got good sound. So it's Monday evening. It's just after 7 p.m. Uh, I've decided I want to play some clips. So I want to play some clips of Rishi Sunak at the COVID inquiry. Obviously, we had Boris Johnson last week at the COVID inquiry, which was interesting, to say the least. Um, Rishi's doing, although he's, the commentary's all about him being rinsed, he's actually not doing too bad a job of defending opening up. And, uh, yeah, I just want to play a couple of clips just so you can get a flavour for what he's saying. Uh, there's an element of, He's obviously on the defensive because eat out to help out was his his baby, really. So there's a lot of emphasis on that. But what we really need to know is the decision-making process and the information they had at the time. Uh, we're not going to get all of that. I wouldn't have thought. It's basically a whitewash, this, this inquiry. But uh, there might be one or two things show up as we go along and uh, anyway this is uh, this is Rishi Sunak at the COVID inquiry and when he gave evidence on the 30th of November that it was at that cabinet meeting on the 8th of July that he heard about the eat out to help eat out to help out scheme for the first time the scheme was announced you'll recall on the same day the 8th of July as part of the plan for jobs Given that the Eat Out to Help Out scheme encouraged the coming together of different households in indoor spaces, which it did, of course, in restaurants, why was that plan not put by the Treasury in front of SAGE, in front of the Secretary of State for Health, and or the Chief Medical Officer for their consideration of the very same issue of the absolute risk of transmission. So the first thing to say is why why do eat out to help out at all? No, 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 please. There is a method to my madness. I'm asking you why, in light of the obvious issue of risk of transmission inherent in any scheme that encouraged households to come together, did the Treasury not consult with SAGE, the CMO, the Secretary of State for Health, or anybody else outside number 10? Because Eat Out to Help Out had been designed specifically in the context of the safe lifting of MPIs that had already been signed off, as we talked about before, as part of the May plan, which had reopened hospitality indoor hospitality that had already been part of the approved may plan eat out to help out only operated within that context and indeed there were a significant range of other mpis that were in place including social distancing covid secure guidance table service contactless ordering one-way systems all of which had been put in place but the overall reopening of indoor hospitality had already been implemented and as we discussed before 
modelled and all the rest of it and involved scientists in that. Uh, and Eat Out the Help Out was designed to operate within that context of the safe lifting of MPIs. It didn't do anything further than that. This was a micro policy to make sure that that capacity, which the scientists had already said was part of an overall package which could be safely delivered, was actually used. Uh, and it was done very much in that context. And in the same way that other economic decisions like a VAT cut for hospitality or a stamp duty cut or indeed furlough or anything else or grants for the hospitality industry wouldn't ordinarily be cleared with medical advisors, nor was this, because we had already made the collective decision to reopen indoor hospitality, and this was a policy that sat within and beneath that. In addition to the obvious economic policy, which was to encourage consumption in, in, the, um, in the hospitality sector, to, to encourage people to use uh, restaurants and to preserve the jobs of women and the lower paid and individuals from minority ethnic backgrounds in the hospitality sector. It's obvious that the plan was designed with a, um, a meritorious consideration in mind. But it was also part of that plan, was it not, to address what you had called the fear, the fact that data showed that our country was far and away the least likely to get back to normal, and to promote what you've described in your Spectator article as an optimistic counter-narrative. You wanted to bring about a change in behaviour to encourage people, more people than had previously gone to restaurants the previous year, to encourage people to come together. That was part of the policy objective, was it not? I think. I think as you're describing it, they're, they're one and the same. My, my, my primary concern was protecting millions of jobs of particularly vulnerable people who worked in this industry. All the data, all the evidence, all the polling, all the input from those companies suggested that unless we did something, many of those jobs would have been at risk with devastating consequences for those people and their families. And that's why independent think tanks had recommended doing something like this. Indeed, other countries had done something like this because everyone was grappling with the same issue of how to ensure that those jobs are safeguarded because people return. And that was the primary driver for what we were doing. And all that material, Mrs. Sunak, internationally, the material from industry bodies and the like, all referred to the balance the balance inherent in any scheme to encourage households to come together in greater numbers, the issue of risk of transmission, putting aside its obvious economic advantage and putting aside the obviously good policy reasons for encouraging restaurant use in the context of restaurants which were already COVID safe, there was no getting away from the fact that an issue for you in the Treasury was, will it nevertheless have an impact on transmission? It's the elephant in the room. You, it couldn't be avoided, could it? 
Well, well no, because you, you made the point in your remarks. It was about COVID secure openings. Indoor hospitality had been opened as part of the May roadmap and not opened in a casual or um, wanton way. It had been opened with a significant set of restrictions, including social distancing, which limited and reduced significantly the typical occupancy of a restaurant with one-way systems, with signage, with screens, with shift work, with contactless payments. Indeed, there was 55 pages of government guidance for the hospitality industry supplemented by 100 pages of guidance from their trade association, UK Hospitality, in including the need for individual risk assessments at an individual restaurant level. So there was an extraordinary amount of work that had gone into the safe reopening of hospitality in a way that it was not previously, right? And it was an entirely different set of hospitality. And within that context, this policy was designed to ensure that the capacity that was available that had been deemed to be safe would actually be used in order to safeguard the jobs of some vulnerable people. The minutes of the meeting of COVID-S, which you attended on the 22nd of June, <coughs> make clear that Professor Sir Chris Whitty in the context, you'll recall, of the debate about the reduction from two metres to one metre rule, said the most risky areas of the package were indoor hospitality and the prospect of reopening schools in September. So there was a clear flag, of course there was a flag, to the issue of transmission in the context of indoor hospitality. Why did the Treasury not raise expressly the scheme for Eat Out to Help Out in the COVID-S meeting of the 16th of July, the COVID-S meeting of the 22nd of July, the COVID-S meeting of the 6th of August, all of which were concerned with transmission risk, August planning, self-isolation periods, schools, scenarios, September return dates, but nothing about Eat Out to Help Out. Why was that? But I think that exactly illustrates my point, because I think what people have missed in this conversation is that there was almost a month between the announcement of Eat Out to Help Out and its commencement. A month. A month for people to raise concerns that they may have had. And actually, it's precisely in those three meetings that you mentioned. COVID-S on the 16th of July, the chief medical officer in the minutes talked about two significant risk moments, schools and winter. He did not mention eat out to help out. On the 22nd of July, if I could just finish, because it's important. On the 22nd of July, the agenda item is August planning. And again, it was not raised by the chief scientific advisor or chief medical officer. On the 6th of August, the COVID-S meeting that you acknowledged, again, the minutes show that returning to schools was the single riskiest element of the government's plan. Those three meetings all happened after the announcement of Eat Out to Help Out. All of them involved the chief scientific advisor and the chief medical officer. They considered specifically the forthcoming risks and in none of those meetings was it raised by them as an issue. Indeed, the PPS, the prime minister has also been specific in his evidence to this inquiry that he doesn't recall representations being made to them to revisit the policy. So I know there's been a lot of commentary on this point, but there was almost a month between announcement and commencement. 
I've outlined my reasons for why we implemented the policy and why we thought it was the right thing to do. And I believe it was the right thing to do to safeguard those jobs in the context of the safe reopening that had already been agreed. But at none of those moments in those meetings, there was plenty of opportunity for people to have raised it either with me or with the prime minister. I don't recall and the minutes do not suggest that it was raised at all in three precise meetings that you mentioned. Those meetings, Mr Sunak, were raised by you in your own witness statement as examples of meetings in which no concerns were raised. But do you accept that the issue of eat out to help out was never raised by you or your department expressly at those meetings or at any other earlier meeting? And that by the date of those meetings, the scheme had already been announced following the cabinet on the 8th of July and announced to the public the same day. Why would I raise it as a risk when I didn't believe that it was because it was it was designed in the context of a safe reopening? The onus is surely on the people who now believe that it was a risk to have raised it at the time when something could have been done about it if they felt strongly. I'm very clear that I don't believe that it was because hospitality had been deemed to be safe to reopen with a considerable, as I said, hundreds of pages of guidance, changes in practice, and had been recommended by think tanks and had been done by countries elsewhere. This was a, a very reasonable, sensible policy intervention to help safeguard those jobs in that safe reopening. That was my view. I didn't believe that it was a risk. I believed it was the right thing to do. But if others are suggesting that they didn't, they had ample opportunity to raise those concerns in forums where I was or where the Prime Minister or others were, and they didn't. Why didn't you tell the Secretary of State for Health in a public health crisis before the 8th of July that you were planning on announcing, once it had gone through Cabinet that day, a scheme to eat out and help out? Why didn't you? bearing in mind that this was a scheme to encourage households to come together, and you'd been debating at the very same time the reduction in the two metre to one metre rule, say to the CMO, we have this plan. It's to encourage the economy to open up, to help the hospitality sector. There are very strong public policy reasons in support of it, but it's obvious there are transmission risks. As course, of course there were, but our position is, it's all right. We are just simply going to have to do this in the greater good. But you never raised it at all with anybody outside number 10. Because as would be completely normal for all economic policy before fiscal events, that's long-standing practice. It always has been so. I wouldn't have discussed the VAT cut on the hospitality sector with the Secretary of State for Health or the stamp duty cut, or the grants. These are all either market-sensitive or economic no, issues. Sinan, which... Forgive me, those are all fiscal measures. The Eat Out to Help Out scheme encouraged more people, additional numbers from different households, to come together in restaurants to eat. It wasn't just a fiscal issue. It was a behavioural matter. Was it one that was applied across the whole of the United Kingdom? Yes, but so 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 were many of the economic interventions. But again, the, the point remains: indoor hospitality. All the points you made about people coming together and eating was already part of the May plan, had already been collectively agreed and announced. It had been said to the country: restaurants were safe to visit, with all the extra COVID secure systems that had been put in place. That was the message. So much so that. The Cabinet Office ran a national campaign 
entitled Enjoy Summer Safely, backed it with considerable funding and national advertising, partnered with brand name companies, because the overall approach was to tell the country it was now safe to return to doing these activities because we had made progress on the virus, because we had track and trace, because we had the JBC, because we had all this COVID secure guidance. That was the very clear message backed by a national advertising campaign, it just wouldn't be entirely normal to discuss individual fiscal measures with people that sat within that context. Do you acknowledge that the evidence from Professors Chris Whitty, Professor Sir Patrick Valance, Professor Sir Jonathan Van Tam, respectively the CMO, GCSA, Deputy CMO, is unanimous that had they been consulted, they would have advised it was highly likely to increase transmission. And whilst, of course, it's a policy matter over which they wouldn't have had the whip hand, it was an issue on which they would have expected to be consulted, given the behavioural aspect of the scheme, the bringing together of more people from different households. Do you acknowledge that? But they've not said that to me. Uh, I've not seen that. And as I said, they had ample opportunity to raise those concerns between the announcement of the scheme and its implementation. None of them chose to do so in any fora that they were in. And I think all of them have said on the record, as the evidence also conclusively demonstrates, that this was in way no shape or form responsible for a second wave, which was predicted by the CMO and CSA as early as my first conversation with them we'll, in we'll, March, we'll come and to that happened in every other country in Europe. That, that, is, that is a different issue with respect, and we're going to address that in a moment. The scheme itself, was it, was it brought to the attention of the devolved administrations? Did you ask for their input or consult with them in any way before the scheme was imposed and introduced in the other four nations, the other three nations? Again, that, that wouldn't have been ordinary policy. It wasn't on things like the furlough scheme or other support that we did. These are competencies of the UK government are competencies of the UK government and they are announced in the normal way. Now, on the question of impact, it is absolutely right that you make plain that whilst there is some slim evidence to suggest that there was a correlation between the take-up of the scheme and new cases of COVID, there is other evidence, primarily in fact a paper prepared by HMRC, to suggest that there was no correlation some local authorities with very high eat out to help out take up had relatively low levels of new COVID cases. Some other local authorities with high take up had higher take up of the COVID virus. So the evidence doesn't significantly support the proposition that there was a, uh, an impact on infection rates. Nevertheless, why was the scheme not extended? Uh, because it was always designed to be temporary. A submission from HM Revenue and Customs titled Eat Out to Help Out Extension dated the 26th of August said, this is a submission concerning the possible extension of the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. There have been some concerns that opening up the hospitality sector has contributed to the rising rate of infection that have led to local lockdowns. So was one issue, one concern, at the time that debate was had around the extension, that there was in fact, or might have been, an impact on infection rates? No, the primary motivation was that it was meant to be a temporary intervention, because in order to 
elicit, and this is standard economic policy, in order to elicit a behavioral response, by definition, what you want is for something to be temporary and credibly temporary, because otherwise you don't elicit the behavioral response that you are hoping to achieve. And as a general rule, the Treasury was always wary, as it should be, of temporary things that cost money becoming permanent, uh, because that comes with significant fiscal implications. So the idea was very clearly to have something that was temporary to elicit the behavioural response, and that was that was always uh, meant to be the case. So it, it was about behavioural response in part. It wasn't just about the fiscal support for the sector. You've, you've just said... I mean, that, that's exactly right, because we, in order to safeguard the jobs of two million people working in the sector, you need people to go and use those businesses. And all the evidence analysis and general view of everyone was that it was unlikely that that was to happen because people were not likely to return to those old behaviours. And this was designed to help encourage them to do so in a safe way. That, that is the explicit purpose of it. You can't safeguard those jobs without people being at the businesses so that they have the money to keep those jobs and employ those people. That's the whole point. One codicil to this, please, Mr Sunak. Mr Hancock told this inquiry that he'd received feedback that the scheme was, quote, causing problems in our intervention areas. And he said that he told HMT about those concerns. And that must have been because from the time that he said it at the end of August, in the context of the debate about whether or not there should be an extension. Are you aware that the Secretary of State for Health, who, by your own word, didn't know in advance of the Cabinet meeting the 8th of July of the promulgation of the scheme, express concerns latterly to your department about the risk of transmission? No, I'm not sure I have any record of that, but I do know he has said that there has been undue focus on this one item and his evidence to the inquiry. Uh, excuse me? You, I said, I said, I, I, he I, said this isn't a matter of some importance. I think he said himself that there's been undue focus on this one item with his words to the inquiry. And he certainly, I have no recollection of him raising that, nor do I have any record of him doing so with me at the time. Well, it's a matter for my lady, but matters as to whether or not they are of importance this inquiry are for this inquiry. All right, so you can, you can get the tour of the, of the day here, really. That's uh, Rishi Sunak doing his best to defend decisions and the decision-making process and, and all of the things that, that were going on in 2020. Uh, he doesn't do a particularly good job of it, but it was a, it was a, honestly, I would never have locked down. I would have uh, kept the vulnerable at home and let everything else happen because that's the way that you get through, through a virus quickly. But I'm just me. Nobody else believed me when, when I was telling them they had an immune system at the time and they had natural immunity. Nobody believed me. Nobody was interested. So there's nothing which I can do about stupidity. Uh, you can't fix stupid. All you've got to do is just keep your head down until stupid goes. <laughs> that's all you can do, really. And that's what I did for the first kind of three months or so. I was telling people, honestly, you've got natural immunity. Just just get the virus and, and let your natural immunity do the rest. But nobody was interested. 
nobody even knew that they were capable of fighting off a virus. So it's, it's, it was just ridiculous. The situation was ridiculous because people were believing the media, believing all that, all that hype that was going on around COVID cases, which are based on PCR tests, which are, which are not designed to be diagnostic. So it was all a load of rubbish, all a complete load of garbage. And we locked down for two years, and we only just got away with not being completely mandated for vaccines. It was horrendous what was going on with people. So we're never, ever going to let that happen again. I guarantee you I shall be on... Uh, at the first sign of any of that happening again, I shall be on a, on a picket line with a sign... I shall be outside of the local civic centre with a with a yellow placard, making sure that that they know that I'm not going to put up with it. And uh, why I put up with it for for the first three months, I'm not altogether sure. But I didn't know what was going on completely the first three months, so I was giving people the benefit of the doubt, and then. At some point, about three or f three or four months in, maybe. Well, it started about six weeks in, but I didn't actually uh, stick my mask under my chin till about three months in or four months in, because I was trying to respect the people in the in the local shops when I was doing my shopping. But and obviously they would glare they would glare at you if you didn't have a mask on, so you couldn't really do it. But uh, the local discount shop was told not to not to challenge people, and that made life easier there. But obviously, the very local shops are small, but you could run in and out in thirty seconds and get what you wanted with nobody else in the shop, and they were fine with that. So it kind of it kind of worked in its own way, but we should have we should have been on the case far far. I, sh I should have been on the case far far sooner. And I'm never ever going to let it happen again. I guarantee that. Anyway, that, that's pretty much it. That's what I wanted to do was just give give people the flavour of the COVID inquiry. Uh, it, it is a whitewash. They're not looking at the origin of the virus or the effectiveness of the vaccine, as far as I can tell. They're not looking at vaccine injuries, as far as I can tell, either. All of that's out of scope. So all the important stuff is out of scope of the inquiry. It's all just administration, really. Learning lessons about administration. But it is what it is. It's the best we've got at the moment. Or at least we're getting a bit of a bit of discovery and a, a bit of cross examination. So it's a little bit useful, but not very. But at least it's it's something. It sets a precedent for other inquiries, which then might have a broader scope at some point in the future. In in other countries, probably because we'd have already done ours a bit early. 
But uh, the que the questions are getting broader. So the origin question is on the table now, which it wasn't really when this inquiry was set up. Vaccine effectiveness is on the table. So all of those things we might potentially get another another inquiry about. You never know. It's all possible. But that's it for now anyway.